some announcements, so everybody needs to uh, pay attention while they're finding their seed coming in from the kitchen or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> Next Men's Prayer Breakfast is going to be on February the 17th. That's our deacons meeting, and I'm hoping we'll have a special speaker. I'm still working on that. <clears throat> also, the Chafer Pastors Conference is coming up in just over a month, about five or six weeks from now, we'll have the pastor's conference. We will need some volunteers in a lot of different areas, so be thinking about that and uh, being ready to sign up for things that we need. Also be in prayer for all of the speakers, their travel, their preparation, things of that nature, and <clears throat> it will be a good thing to in- invite people, um, especially if they need to understand Islam. So also, uh, Bryce mentioned a Roku app. A Roku is a little stick, connects to, it plugs into your television, connects with Wi-Fi and allows you to watch things on Netflix and Amazon, all of those things. But we created a Dean Bible Ministries West Houston Bible Church app that shows up on Roku that you can download uh, onto your Roku stick, and then you can move it to the top so that it's right there, and you can use that to live stream, and it's really helpful. Israel trip is coming along. We have around 20, 21 people going at this point. There's plenty of room for uh, more people to sign up. If you're thinking about it, we encourage you to go ahead and do that. We are uh, <clears throat> probably we don't close it down until we have to purchase the uh, flight tickets, airplane tickets, which will be sometime in early April. So there's still room and still time, but it's time to stop procrastinating. And then there, we added a Petra extension to that trip. And it's not just an extension to go to Petra, as we explain on all this is on the website. It, we, it will allow us to go to places like Mount Nebo. Go see, hopefully, the Metabah map, which is very significant uh, early map uh, that, that um, I haven't seen it in a long time now, but it's, it was a mosaic that was recovered and shows the Byzantine city of Jerusalem. But it's an important map, shows the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the cardio, things of that nature. We will also be able to go to not only Petra, but also on the way back go to the Tabernacle in the Wilderness, and which is a full-scale tabernacle. The docents there give an excellent description of everything that goes, went on in the, in the tabernacle, how it was built, all the instructions in Scripture. It's quite good. We'll also go to a number of other sites that we'll have to, whatever we have time for as we come back up from the south. So that's a, um, it's not just going over to Petra. It involves a lot more. It's three extra days that are, <clears throat> that are well worth it. Also, the Museum of the Bible trip is coming together, and we do have a pastor from uh, Pennsylvania who would like to come and join us. We met him a couple of years ago at Yad Vashem's, real solid guy. He's part of our Friday morning group, and he, um, <clears throat> but he needs a roomie. He needs somebody to split the uh, cost of the uh, hotel room, and, um, <clears throat> and he would like to come. I think that's... Oh, there's one other. Oh, yeah, Jim Dumas. Jim Dumas uh, is a missionary over in Kiev. He's worked with Jim Myers a lot in the past. He's from Houston, and he was a member of Baraka for many years in Bethel and then Pine Valley. 
and he's left his car here. Uh, he sold his house and everything a few years ago, and the only thing he leaves here is a car. Uh, he had stored it with Bird Seville, and uh, it was necessary to move the car, so we moved it out to Orlando's. But that's very inconvenient, hard to get to, and we need to find a place where Jim can store his car. It's not all year round. He comes in a couple of times a year. Jim Myers comes in usually in early June, and then he has the car the remainder of the summer until he leaves at the end of uh, August. So we just need to find a place uh, to store that. Also, if possible, someone who could go to the airport Next Tuesday, Jim Dumas is flying in. We need somebody to go pick him up around uh, 1.45, 2 o'clock when he arrives next uh, next Tuesday afternoon. If you'd like to help out with any of those things, just uh, contact me, talk to me about it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. I hope you have had time today to enjoy your relationship with God, focus upon him. Uh, read through the scriptures. I heard from one person uh, who was sort of laid up over the last uh, month or so, uh, read through the entire Bible in about six weeks. So that opened up all kinds of perspective for them. And I, I used to do that. I don't have time to do that anymore, but I used to do that. And that was um, uh, very, very important uh, to really capture uh, the scriptures. It takes a lot more time. You may spend an hour and a half a day reading through the scripture, but that's a, uh, that's an important thing. So anyway, uh, hope you've enjoyed that. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to uh, give you the opportunity to make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord, preparation for our study, so that God can, the Holy Spirit can make this clear and profitable for your spiritual life. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful we can come before your throne of grace. We know that you are intimately involved in our lives, yet nevertheless you have ordained that we come to you in prayer and that we bring our requests before you and that we uh, express our gratitude, our thanks for so many ways in which you in, uh, <clears throat> are involved in our lives. Father, we're thankful for the good news in the uh, recovery of Tommy Ice, and he is still in ICU and recovering, and we're thankful that everything has gone well so far, and we pray for his continued healing and continued uh, recovery, and that we'll, there will be no complications. Father, we pray for a number of people in this congregation. Some are fighting the flu, some are fighting cold, some are fighting uh, other injuries and uh, major health problems, and we pray for your uh, healing grace. We pray for your uh, compassionate care upon them, your comfort for them, and that uh, they would be a tremendous witness to your grace uh, during these challenges in their life. 
Father, we pray for us tonight as we focus on your word that we might come to understand what is uh, being recorded for us, why it's recorded for us, and that God the Holy Spirit will help us see the important doctrinal truths here. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 2, and the underlying spiritual problem here is a problem, as I pointed out last time, with the sin nature. It's a problem of the lust patterns related to revenge and revenge motivation. So tonight what I want to do is basically get through the events of chapter 2, and then we will get into uh, what the Bible teaches about revenge and vengeance and vindictiveness and what the Bible teaches there so that uh, that sets us up to understand all these things that are happening in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that God uses in a remarkable way. So this is also an example of God's providence. It's an example of how Romans 8.28 works, that in spite of all this civil war, in spite of all of the violence and the murder and everything that's happening, God is working all things together for good, and it all works together to bring David not on his own efforts, but to bring him to the throne of to the throne of a united kingdom where the people of all 12 tribes are united together behind him he doesn't manipulate the situation so we have three chapters here and they are uh, they really do focus on some important uh, realities in how a culture and how individuals, whether it's one person, whether it's a family, whether it's a small company, whether it is a country, how it can fragment because of unrestrained arrogance. And so that is the background. The basic three sections of Second Samuel, Second Samuel 2, uh, through 10, that is, the first chapter really belongs with, with 1 Samuel. It's the, clo- it's the reporting of Saul's death. So from 2 through 10, we see God's blessing of David in uniting the kingdom. Then we have in the second section David's sins, and so God is going to discipline David for his sins. David reaps the consequences. God brings uh, judgment upon David and his family. But because David reacts and responds in humility and turns to God, that cursing is turned into blessing, and that's chapters 11 through 20. And then in 21 to 24, there are six appendices, you know, six different episodes that give evidence of the greatness of the Davidic covenant. So what we've seen at the beginning is in chapter 2, the beginning of David's kingdom. The first part in the first uh, four verses, David moves to Hebron, which is really the capital of Judah, the tribal area of Judah in the south. And then in verses uh, 4 uh, B through 7, his gracious overtures to Jabesh Gilead, that's on the opposite side of the Jordan River called the Transjordan because it's trans means across. It's across the Jordan from Jerusalem. And then we began last time in the third section where Ishbosheth, who is the only surviving son of Saul, is crowned king over Israel, and he reigns for two years, and that's covered in verses 8 through 11. 
And then the long section is this conflict between Abner, who is the general of uh, the northern kingdom. He was Saul's general. He is the one behind <clears throat> Ishbosheth's coronation, and he is in conflict conflict with Joab. And that is what develops in these uh, twenty or so verses at the end of the chapter. So that's a long section, but it sets up what's going to happen in chapter three and chapter four, all of which comes together in a united. Uh, the tribes are united behind David. As I pointed out last time, we have to understand who these uh, key people are, that Abner was Saul's uncle. He was the general of Saul's uh, army. After Saul died, he rejected David as king, and he wanted to be the power behind the throne. He didn't want to take it for himself, but he had Ishbaal or Ishbosheth. Uh, both names are used of Saul's son, convinced him to become king. Now, what I pointed out last time was five years goes by before he becomes king because he only reigns for two years, and that is seen as the last part of the uh, time, the seven and a half years that David is king in Hebron. So that first five years, the northern kingdom is in absolute disarray because of the Philistine incursion, their defeat of the uh, army of Saul at Mount Gilboa, the death of Saul, the death of his sons just leaves the northern kingdom in complete disarray. And then the other uh, person in the north is uh, Michal, who is Saul's daughter. She had been David's wife until Saul took her away from David, had her married to Paltiel, and now she is uh, sent back to David. So you think your family has some problems uh, with some of your relatives. Well, this is a real uh, marriage problem, and David already has, uh, I think at this point, two or three other wives. So we <clears throat> started this section in verse 8, but Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to uh, Mahanaim, and he made him king. Now, what authority did Abner have? He survived the battle of Gilboa, And as the general of the army, he's the highest-ranking survivor of Saul's administration. So he takes it upon himself to anoint and crown Ishbosheth, the king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Now, if we want to see where these places are located... I put this map up here that shows the areas of the uh, of the tribal allotments to the tribes of Israel. And so in the upper north, in the green shaded area, is the tribe of Asher. They are on the coast. Uh, south of there, if you look at this little uh, indentation on the coast, right at the base of that is where the modern port of Haifa is located. Haifa is the only deep water port in the eastern Mediterranean, and that is right at the head of a valley that goes from the northwest to the southeast. That's called the Valley of Esdralon. It's also called the Valley of Jezreel. The city of Jezreel, which was a later uh, capital in the northern kingdom, is uh, located on this map right here in the tribal area of Issachar in the red. So that's called Jezreel. So 
Uh, he's the he's crowned king over Asher. He's crowned king over Gilead. Now, Gilead was a term that basically applied to everything in the Transjordan. In the south, you have the tribal allotment for Reuben. North of that, in the green, you have the tribal allotment for the tribe of Gad. And then in the north, in the purple, you have the half-tribe of Manasseh. Look at the size of their territory. Well, most of that is desert. Uh, we've traveled through that in past trips to Israel, and it goes all the way up into what is now modern uh, modern Syria. Here's Damascus. So right about here is uh, Mount Carmel, and from Mount Carmel to Damascus is about 40 miles. So that's like from here over to probably Leek City, not that far. And, uh, and on a clear day, if you're up on Mount Carmel, you can see Damascus. Uh, you can't see Russia from your front door, but you can see Damascus from Mount Carmel. But look at the size of the territory for half-tribe of Manasseh, and then over here in this brown-shaded area in the center of the northern part of Israel, <clears throat> you have the western tribal allotment for Manasseh. So Manasseh had a large tribal uh, allotment. But all of this across Transjordan territory is... Gilead. So you have Gilead, Asher, uh, Jezreel, the Valley of Jezreel. That's this central uh, area. It's very extremely fertile, and it was is the breadbasket uh, of Israel. Then you have the tribal allotment of Ephraim down here. Uh, the yellow is Benjamin, also mentioned here. And so this is where the dip, and and here's Dan over here. Dan moves up here later on. But this is an original tribal allotment for the tribe of Dan, which covers the coast, Joppa, or where Tel Aviv is today, down to uh, Ashdod and, and Gaza and those areas. So this this basically covers all of the territory that is Israel. And so, it, it, but it's not unified. In fact, parts of it are still under the control of the Philistines. It's not not unified. Uh, at all, and so in verse ten we're told that Ishbosheth reigned only two years, <clears throat> and only the house of Judah followed David. That's where stability was. It's the arrogance led to the defeat in the north, the arrogance of Saul, and this led to instability and a collapse there. On David's side, you have the three sons of Zariah. Zariah is David's uh, <clears throat> older sister. So the, her three sons are his nephews, Joab, who is David's uh, uh, general, who is sometimes way out of control, and David has to rein him in. In fact, when David's on his deathbed, it's been so bad he could never quite take care of the Joab problem. So he tells Solomon that one of the first things he needs to do when he becomes king is to uh, take care of Joab and to execute him. Uh, he's got two brothers, Abishai and Azahel, and Azahel's the youngest of the three brothers and is a fast runner. So this is the sort of the background. This is the setup to what is going to take place in these next few verses. So we're told in verse 11 that <clears throat> David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah for seven and a half years. So there's just turmoil for five years because of all this sin. So as Abner has taken uh, 
Ishbosheth to Mahanaim, which is located here, and that's really on the border. Let me back up to this other map. See, here's Mahanaim right here at the tip of that arrow in the middle of that red circle at the base of the purple area right on the border with Gad. So this is a is significant because it's a place that can unite at least those two tribes together. It's across the Jordan, so it's safe from attacks from the Philistines right now, and this becomes the capital for Ishbosheth's uh, kingdom. And uh, so Abner is trying to pull everything together at this particular time. Now let me go back to this map. So they move, we're told... Um, that they're going to move to Gibeon in verse 12. Now, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Gibeon is located, it sounds a lot like Gibeah of Saul. It's just north of Gibeah of Saul. There are two different locations. And this is um, not very far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem would be, i got it covered up by the bottom of this red circle, but Jerusalem is just south of there, so they're marshalling what they have of an army and taking it down to the border with Judah so that he can try to unite all the all the tribes behind him. But uh, Judah and Hebron are very loyal to David, and in that part of Israel, there's stability, there's order, there's prosperity. Uh, David is in control, and God is blessing that. Now, what happens coming up is that there's going to be a um, an incident that will occur between the northern king between these these armies of the of Ishbosheth and the army of David, and it appears that something unintended. I don't want to use the word accident because I don't think there are accidents in God's plan, but it's something that was not originally intended uh, took place at this uh, at this incident. So if we look at, uh, let me go down here. Somehow I managed to duplicate slides. Go to 12. When Abner, or Let's look at 13, if I can. I've got 12 up there. I just have to make this thing do what it's supposed to do. Okay, there we go. Abner moves him down here to this area just north of Jerusalem, and this becomes the scene of this particular battle. Now, here's another map. Sometimes I don't know how the maps are going to show up on the screen down here. Here's Jebus that's become that the Jebusites were inhabiting Jerusalem. Here's Bethlehem just to the south. Bethlehem is about seven or eight miles from uh, the old city of uh, of Jerusalem. And here's where uh, David is down here at Hebron. So they are at this particular time they're going to go up, and there's going to be this conflict at. Uh, Gibeon. It's called uh, the Battle of the Sharp Swords, and that's what sets the stage for what's going to come up. So that gives you an idea of where things are. In 2.13, we read Joab, the son of Zariah, 
and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side. So they have David's men are on one side lined up, and on the other side you have Job. And they sit down. It's a relaxed environment. They're not expecting to go into full combat at this particular at this particular point. Now, let me tell you something about the Pool of Gibeon. I've got a couple of pictures for you. Uh, this uh, originally in the mid 1800s, um, Robinson, who was uh, Robinson of Robinson's Arch. Uh, was a early Victorian archaeologist working in the Middle East. He thought he had discovered the pool of Gibeon at a rectangular pool that he had uncovered, but it turns out that was really much later than this event. Uh, and so uh, then there was a discovery of a, another pool that was carved out of the, uh, I think it's uh, limestone bedrock, where they removed approximately 3,000 tons of limestone as they carved this out. And so the pool is goes all the way down here. This would have been used as a reservoir as a well. It has a five-foot-wide staircase that spirals down the side of the cylinder, which provides access to the bottom. So if the water table is low, then you can get all the way down to it. And if it's high, of course, you don't need to go. Uh, quite that far down, so it uh, gives access. And so they are lined up by the pool of Gibeon here, and then there's going to be a challenge given. Here's another picture of the uh, pool at Gibeon. And notice this challenge that is given comes from Abner. doesn't come from Joab. Joab's not the initiator here. Abner is the initiator here. And what he's going to do is set up a tournament. This is like an athletic contest between the two sides. It is not a combat situation. It is more of an athletic situation. And he says, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab agrees, okay, we'll have this competition. Now, this is the same time frame as the, um, <clears throat> as the Trojan Wars. And if you read the Iliad, you know that you have your two champions coming out from the Greeks and the Trojans, and they meet, and they have this, uh, I think it's Hector, and it's not Priam, I forget who the other one is, and they, um, Achilles, and they have a, they're going to fight, and whoever wins, wins the battle. And so what these guys are doing, you saw the same kind of thing with David and Goliath. It comes out of that Greek, Greek background and the influence of, of uh, the Greek sea peoples in the eastern Mediterranean. And so they are going to, instead of fighting, it appears that what they're doing is just having this competition. Whoever uh, wins the Olympics, as it were, is going to uh, win, win the war. And so they arose, we're told in verse 15, by number 12 from Benjamin, the followers of Ishbosheth, and 12 from the servants of David. And as they uh, get into the competition, they tempers start to flare, and all of a sudden it gets out of control, and they are going to fight to the death. 
And the way it's described is that one just grabs the uh, each other. The, they pair off and they grab the other by the head and stab them. And so all 24 die. And this, of course, just lights the flame that uh, that explodes into um, <clears throat> into a civil war. And but it flows out of that. And what I've got pictured up there is one of the uh, uh, <clears throat> one one of the uh, carvings from Assyria that pictures this kind of hand to hand. Uh, combat. It's located in a museum now in Germany. But at pictures, that, so this kind of thing was not unknown in the Middle East, this representative uh, combat. And so the lesson we learned from this is that sin has consequences. They're not dependent upon the Lord. The one side, uh, Abner is the one that initiates. They are rife with arrogance and this <clears throat> explodes into this civil war. And so we read in verse 17 that there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten by the servants of David. God is blessing David, and God is giving him uh, <clears throat> the victory. And so this is a sign of the arrogance of the northern kingdom. We'll see it again and again through the history of Israel that leads to their uh, their collapse. So they've had this battle, and they call it the Battle of the Sharp Swords. And following that battle, there is a additional conflict that takes place between Joab and his two brothers versus Abner. Abner is the instigator of this event, so he is going to be chased by the youngest of the three brothers, Asahel, who is said in the scripture to be fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. So he takes off after Abner, and he's not going to be distracted. He doesn't turn to the left. He doesn't turn to the right. He doesn't focus on anything, but he is not armed. Okay, so he's chasing Abner. Now, Abner uh, identifies him, knows who he is. They, they are... Um, uh, they respect each other. Abner turns back, asks him who he is. He identifies himself, and Abner pleads with him, turn to your left, turn to your right, and these young men who have been killed, he's saying, grab somebody's armor. He's not out to... The picture here is he doesn't want to kill Azahel. He says, turn aside and grab some armor if we're going to get into, into battle, if we're going to fight. And so... Azahel doesn't do it. He won't turn aside. And so again, he pleads with him to turn aside. In verse 22, he said, Why should I strike you to the ground? Why should I kill you? Abner is not intent on killing uh, Azahel. But he refused to turn aside. And then there's another what appears to be an accident or an unintended uh, incident. And and uh, Abner takes his spear and the end of his spear was such that he just intended to stop him by, by, by knocking the wind out of him and poking him in the stomach. But one of the things that they would do is slightly sharpen the base of the spear so if they were in combat, they would set it in the ground and a charge of uh, infantry or horses would then impale themselves on that, on, on that spear. And so when he... 
hits Azahel in the gut to knock the wind out of him, it goes right through him and, and kills him, and Azahel falls to the ground. So this is, you got two things that have happened here that are apparent accidents. One is the men's temper flares, and they kill each other. And now this incident where Azahel is unintentionally killed as, as he's chasing uh, Abner. God is using what appears to us to be accidents in order to bring about his plan. So there's no accidents in the plan of God. And so after this uh, happened, then Joab and Abishai, the other brothers, are out for revenge, and they start chasing Abner. And they chase him all day. The sun's going down in verse 24, and they identify the location in the wilderness of Gibeon. And then the uh, children of Benjamin now have found uh, Abner and they rally around him and they're going to take their stand on the top of the hill and there's going to be massive bloodshed. But Abner then calls out to Joab and again he he asks for peace and he says to he's going to negotiate with Joab and say, so the sword devour uh, forever. If we keep this up, we're just going to kill each other and that's not going to help anybody. It will be bitter in the in the end. How long then will uh, <clears throat> until you tell the people to return from pursuing the brethren? Let's stop it now before uh, any more are killed. And Joab responds positively. Joab, though, I think is is crafty. He knows that this would involve a lot of people being killed. That a lot of his people would be killed, and he realizes that if he can wait he will have uh, vengeance uh, later on. And so he, I think, is going to sue for, go along with the peace process just so he can get back at <coughs> Abner at a better time. So Joab blows the trumpet, the people stop the pursuit, and they don't fight anymore. They're going to have an armistice. And Abner and his men traveled all night, crossed over the Jordan, went on back to uh, Mahanaim, and then um, we're told, that, so Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and they went back to David and went back to um, went back to Hebron. And we're told in verse 31 that the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who had died, and they took Azahel's body, buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. That's why when we had this map up here, you have the green line here where they originally went up. They had the battle at Gibeon, and then they chase after Abner. This is somewhere in the area where the death of uh, Azahel takes place. And then they have the battle, and then they go back. David's troops go back to Hebron, whereas after this battle here, this is where uh, they have their truce, and then uh, Abner and his men Go back to Mahanaim. So that describes what happens. Now, uh, the closing of this of this section is in really in three one, and in three one we read that. I thought I had it up there. I don't. In three one we read now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger. Why? Because God is blessing the house of David. 
David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Then we're going to get a progress report in the next few verses, but I want to stop here because what is going on in the background here that we see again and again showing up in the history of Israel are these manifestations of their arrogance, their independence from God, just letting the sin nature run free. And what we see in the coming episodes is that we are going to see... Let me see if I can... There we go. What the Bible teaches about revenge and vengeance. So this is important. We also come to this in one way or another. We succumb to this because somebody treats us dirty, somebody does us wrong, somebody says something about us, or it may be even uh, much, much worse. And so then we think in our minds, we start tracking with mental attitude sins, and we want to get even with them. We want to think about retaliation. Sometimes it's ne- we know it's never going to go any farther than than what we think about between our ears, but we sort of relish that. We want to think about what it would be like to get back at somebody who has either we perceive that they have done us wrong or uh, they actually have. Now, all of this flows out of the sin nature. As I've pointed out several times in different classes, we've been talking about this. The core at the motivation level of the sin nature is our arrogance, and it manifests through various lust patterns. And so we have lust patterns that we've seen with the uh, religious leaders and the Roman leaders in, in uh, at the time of Jesus. They uh, have power lust. They have approbation lust. Uh, they are control freaks. Uh, all of these things are part of their manifestation of their sin nature. They cannot relax. They have to control everything because in their minds they're basically saying, I can't be, have happiness or stability unless things go the way I want them to go. I've got to have my way, and so I'm going to control everything to make sure I get there. That's power lust. And it's related to approbation lust. Then we have revenge and revenge motivation. Anybody that does, doesn't do things the way we want them to, we want to get them. Or maybe they do things. They gossip. They slander us. Maybe they do something that causes us to lose a job. Maybe they're, um, they're competing with us and, uh, whether they win, uh, legitimately or illegitimately, we want to get back at them. So that's the essence of revenge and revenge motivation. But these are terms that we've often heard. We've used them in life. We think about verses that we've heard in Scripture. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Well, isn't vengeance wrong? What do these words mean? What does it mean when we talk about revenge What does it mean when we talk about vengeance? And what do we mean when we talk about being vindictive? Now, you're going to learn something here, so don't fall asleep. Revenge. Revenge means to retaliate for an injury or a wrong. I would change that. That's what the... uh, the concise Oxford English Dictionary says, I think it's either for an injury or wrong or for a perceived injury or wrong. It's the desire to repay 
for an injury or wrong or a perceived injury or wrong. Now, think about that a minute. What isn't mentioned in relation to this definition? What's not mentioned there is that this is necessarily wrong. Okay? Now I'm going to make a point about this as we go through this. Vengeance is punishment inflicted or retribution exacted for an injury or wrong. Now, if we look at those two, revenge and vengeance, according to the dictionary definition, could be legitimate or illegitimate. I've often, I didn't understand this until I started going through this today, but for years I've heard people, you know, their, their loved one or their friend or just somebody is going to be uh, executed under the law, Texas laws of capital punishment. And then somebody who is the victim says, well, I really don't want vengeance. And you may say, well, and I, what I've always said is, it's not vengeance, it's legal action. However, what we see in this definition is that this, the, the, the basic semantic value of these terms includes either legal punishment or illegal, illegitimate punishment. I'm going to make a point out of this before we get done. So it's important to understand that, that the basic core semantic meaning of revenge and vengeance are not inherently illegitimate or wrong. Context determines whether it's illegitimate or wrong. Okay, now you've always heard these terms used in a illegitimate sense. But when you get in the scripture, you've always, it's always bothered you when you read that God said, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. How can God have vengeance? That's vindictiveness and therefore that's wrong. Okay? Here's the issue. What we will see is in the Hebrew, you have the same issue. The word that's translated vengeance in some context means the application of justice. It's legitimate. In other contexts, it is somebody taking the law into their own hands and working outside legal channels to uh, retaliate personally. That's when it's a sin. So these words do not, do not necessarily mean something illegitimate. It depends on whether the constituted legal authorities are executing justice on somebody or whether it's an individual taking the retribution into their own hands and operating outside of the law and involved with other types of sin. Now, the term vindictiveness is inherently a negative term, a sinful term. Vindictiveness is having or showing a strong or unreasoning desire for revenge. That's according to Concise Oxford English Dictionary, and Collins Dictionary says it's characterized by spite or rancor. See, that's your mental attitude sin that changes it from a desire for objective, legitimate justice to uh, be born out in the life of this individual and making it just personal retaliation because this did somebody did something to me. So <clears throat> when it comes to revenge as a sin, 
We're restricting this to the desire to personally repay an injury or wrong, whether it's real or perceived, without recourse to the constituted or legitimate authority, where we're taking matters into our own hands. That's what distinguishes the difference between the legitimate use of vengeance as a legal term, honest, objective legal term, that, apply, that means the application of the law and at times just to, to, to personal. This is why we have this problem. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story. When I was in the seventh grade, we were learning how to write, and we were learning how to uh, write a topical paragraph and how to write a thesis sentence and then how to build the case for our thesis sentence and then prove our case and write a conclusion. So... I decided that at the seventh grade, which is when you're about 12 years old, that I would write my paper on the legitimacy of capital punishment. Okay, this was in 1964. Now you know how, when I was born. This is in 1964, so I wrote a three-page paper. I had had an excellent Sunday school class on capital punishment not long before, and I took my notes, and I wrote a you know, reasonably good paper for a 12-year-old arguing for capital punishment. But my seventh-grade English teacher wrote on the bottom of the paper, but vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And I didn't know how to answer that. So I had to go to my parents and say, what's the answer? It says, God sometimes executes his judgment directly, and sometimes he authorizes justice to be carried out uh, through intermediate means, through human beings. And so when God says vengeance is mine, it does not negate human authorities from carrying out that vengeance under the authority of God. But that term vengeance still, I didn't quite understand that until I got into seminary some years later and was studying the Hebrew word, which clearly has the idea of the uh the execution of justice, the application of justice, but not in every context. So you have that same ambiguity in the Hebrew word as you do in the English word, except most of us only hear words like vengeance and revenge in negative contexts where they're related to sin, and we don't really like using them in positive contexts. But I've demonstrated from the dictionary that it doesn't inherently have a sinful connotation. So, continuing to talk about revenge as a sin, revenge in this sinful sense is thus motivated by self-absorption. He hurt me. He caused me to lose my job. He injured me. Something where they did something to me, and so it's all about me. So it's motivated from our sin nature and self-absorption, which is at the very heart of arrogance. This involves the arrogant skills. Arrogant skills start with self-absorption, which is the basic orientation that you came with out of the womb. You were self-absorbed. As soon as you had a problem, you screamed and you cried and you wanted everybody's attention because it was all about you. And unless your parents applied the rod of correction at critical moments in your upbringing, you still think everything is all about you most of the time. And if you were taught 
self-control and self-discipline by your parents, even as an unbeliever, you have a damper to put on your self-absorption called just basic self-control. If you're a believer and you're growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and walking by the Holy Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. That is not the same self-control that uh, any human being can can master uh, because that's still related to their self-absorption. So self-absorption is at the heart of arrogance, and that leads to self-indulgence. The more we uh, focus on what I want, me, 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 then the more we indulge ourselves and give in to ourselves, and we're not learning any kind of self-mastery. Uh, the more we are, indulge ourselves, the more we justify it. We can rationalize it uh, all kinds of different masterful ways. So that's self-justification. And then the more we self-justify, the more self-deceived we become until we basically treat ourselves as the God of the universe. And this is self-deification. And this is just a cycle that goes on and on. And the longer we dwell in it, the worse we become. And if there's no uh, sense of self-discipline or control or uh, system of morality to bring that under control, then we end up being, being a psychotic serial killer. Third point is that revenge can be a mental attitude sin where we fantasize about getting even with someone over a real or perceived injury. It's, it never is activated, but it dwells in our mind. And the more we dwell on it, the more we think about it. And I don't know about you, but I've had some people who've done me dirty in the past and where you just think, oh, boy, I would really like to get back at them. And then you realize, well, that's a sin. And, and if I continue to dwell on that, it's self-destructive because it destroys our own mental uh, cohesion. That's what sin does. It eats away at the at the inside. So we only hurt ourselves by initiating this complex of sins that goes along with revenge motivation. You've got anger and hatred and jealousy and bitterness, and then that's going to manifest itself as sins of the tongue. Sometimes you're going to uh, cloak it over, and we're going to pray for this person. And you come up with these prayer requests, and all you want to do is gossip about how bad they are. Um, <clears throat> but there's slander and gossip, maligning and judging others comes out of that because we want other people to think as badly about that person as we do. And then that can in turn develop into overt actions of violence, uh, murder, destruction, all kinds of things. Fourth point is that all sins that are left unchecked by either moral self-control which any unbeliever can do, or the self-control of the walk by the Spirit will metastasize and fragment the soul. Now, if you multiply that through a culture where there's no self-control, where there's nothing but the indulgence of self-absorption, then you get the same thing at a cultural or national level where the culture or the nation fragments and falls apart. And we're witnessing that in this country. If you watch the news, it's just there's so much fake news. I think there's fake news on each side, but there's most, mostly fake news on the left. 
and there's no willingness to cooperate with the president. And constantly, day by day, they're just the most outrageous charges are leveled against the president. Now, I'm not going to defend any of his tweets or some of the outrageous things that he has said, but, you know, those of us who are on the right certainly put up with a lot of much worse for eight years. And it seems like people who are on the left uh, certainly can exercise a little self-control just as people on the right did for eight years because that's part of what makes a mature culture. But when you melt down and you cry and you whine all the time, whether it's about this in politics or whether it's ju- just about how you lost your job or somebody badmouthed you or somebody reported something about what you did uh, and that got you in trouble or you think it got you in trouble, whatever it may be, if your reaction is self-absorption, whining and self-pity and complaining and wanting to get back at that person, then that's a recipe for complete self-destruction. And this is what happens. The only solution is to confess the sin and begin to apply the word so that every time you're tempted to think those thoughts, you confess the sin and you think the things that, what have we been studying and Uh, Peter on Thursday night, whatsoever is good, whatsoever is right, whatsoever is virtuous, whatsoever is a good report, think on these things. So that's the way you handle it as a believer. Biblically, the solution for revenge is love for others. Often we quote Leviticus 19.18b that says, you shall love love your neighbor as yourself. But look at the first part of the verse. That's a contrast to the first part of the verse, which says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, when you think you're justified in being vindictive towards your neighbor, instead, love them. Think about that. That command is not in isolation. It is what you're supposed to do when you feel like you need to get back at somebody, you want revenge, you want to think evil thoughts about them. Now, the word that is translated vengeance is that Hebrew word nakam, which is normally translated take vengeance or revenge to avenge yourself or be avenged, and it is also used in relation to the goel, The goel is the kinsman redeemer. Ga'al is the verb, and that's the verb related to redemption in the Old Testament. And it's the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, in the story of Ruth, who who's a widow, and she goes to her kinsman Boaz to redeem her, and he will marry her, and she'll have that inheritance and become uh, David's great-grandmother. The first time we see... The use of this word in the scripture is in Genesis 4.15 after Cain has murdered his brother Abel. God puts a mark on Cain and he says, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him, that is the person who kills Cain, sevenfold. Well, who's going to take that vengeance on the person who kills Cain? God. God's the one who's going to take that vengeance. And that's a use of the term that is positive. It is not a sinful concept. It's the first time we see this. And in the theological word book of the Old Testament, 
the author of that article on Nakam states, vengeance and revenge are ideas that would appear to have no good ethical validity. That's how most of us think about it. And he says, whether coming from God or man, but such is not the case when the use of this root is properly understood in its Old Testament setting and New Testament application. See, I didn't just come up with this idea that sinfulness is not an inherent quality of the terms vengeance or revenge. It is recognized by scholars related to the original language words for vengeance in both Hebrew and Greek. So, under point six, other vengeance in the legal and ethical sense, so you have the use of the word vengeance in a legal and ethical sense, as is mediated through human government and legitimate lines of authority, where God delegates authority and responsibility to human government and to men to execute justice on those who have violated the law. And some examples of that are in Ezekiel 25:14, Joshua 10:13 and Numbers 31 2 and 3. You can look those up on your own. I didn't want to bog down on this, but this is where vengeance is carried out and it's legitimate. It's an act of justice. <clears throat> Going on in this sense of the positive sense of the term under point 7 as such, the term often refers to God's justice enacted on rebellious mankind. So we have passages like Isaiah 124. All of these use the word nakam. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. Now, if we read into the meaning of vengeance, the idea of taking personal retribution against somebody because they did something to hurt me, then we're going to think this says something bad about God, but that's not the inherent meaning of the word vengeance. The inherent meaning is to exercise uh, judgment against somebody or justice against somebody, and it can be a positive term, and that's how it's used here. God is going to... Uh, bring justice to bear against his enemies. Jeremiah 5. Now, here's a chapter that uses almost the same language three times in one chapter. That ought to get you to pay attention to what's going on. It is an indictment on the southern kingdom of Judah for their rebelliousness and their idolatry and how God is going to judge them for violating the Mosaic Covenant. In 5 9, 529, and then uh, the third one is 9 9, we read, Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord, and shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? That is Judah. And that's just repeated three times in Jeremiah, in these, these two, two in chapter 5 and one in ch- chapter 9. <clears throat> then another use is in Psalm 99 8 where David says, You answered them, O Lord, our God. You were to them God who forgives. Now he's talking about the Exodus generation. They rebelled against you, but you forgave them. Ah, but nevertheless, there was still divine discipline. Though you took vengeance, that is, though you exercised judgment 
on their deeds, that is, their rebellious activities. So what I'm pointing out is don't think of vengeance just as all or revenge just as always something negative. Vindictiveness is always negative. Revenge and vengeance can be legitimate when it is done through constituted authorities who are executing justice and when it's just personal retaliation because somebody did something to hurt us, then it is a sin. And that's what we see under point eight. In other passages, humans are warned not to take vengeance in their own hands. They're not to take the law into their own hands is how we would put it. Deuteronomy 32:35, God says, vengeance is mine and recompense. Now, that is going to be translated a little differently in the Septuagint. That's what's quoted in Romans 12, 19, where Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Don't take, don't put justice in your own hands. Put it in the hands of God. Let God deal with any injustices towards you. He is the God who is, knows all things. He loves us. He has a perfect plan. And as Abraham put it, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? He will do what is right, and he probably won't let you sit in the corner and watch because that's just going to feed your revenge motivation. And Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 32:35, saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes that as well. For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Ultimately, you know, God has delegated mankind to be the intermediate agency to carry out justice. But there are times when we may not get justice from the government. We may not get justice from human institutions. We just have to put it into the hands of the Lord and rest in that, leave it there, and he will take care of it. So the result of the arrogance of Abner is that it plunges the uh, tribes into a long civil war, and we will see how that continues to develop and fragment the nation as we go into uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that we are to uh, walk by the Holy Spirit that through the power of your word and the Holy Spirit, we develop self-mastery, self-control, mastery of our thoughts, our mental attitude, and that we are not to give in to thoughts of revenge, thoughts of getting back at people or retaliation, uh, but we are to focus on serving you and let you take care of those who deserve punishment. And we need to learn to just put it in your hands. And Father, we thank you for these things, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.